You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 330 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, my guest is author Ronnie Pontiac. Ronnie recently published his book American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World. The book shows how, from the very beginning, America was a vibrant blend of beliefs from all four corners of the world. Ronnie worked as Manly P. Hall's research assistant, screener and designated substitute lecturer for seven years. And for those who don't know, Manly P. Hall, he was an author, a lecturer, astrologer and mystic who died in 1990. So he totally missed out on the, the, the grunge revolution. Uh, his best known work is the excellent The Secret Teachings of All Ages, published in 1928. Uh, in 1934, Manly P. Hall founded the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles, which is an American non-profit organization with the aim to promote the study of the world's wisdom literature. Manly P. Hall believed the accumulated wisdom of mankind is the birthright of every individual, and he founded the facility to serve the general public to this end. So we talk a bit about Manly P. Hall in, in this episode. That's why I thought it would be good if you have some general knowledge of who this great person was. But that's enough of that. Let's get the show going. Here's Ronnie Pontiac. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. Can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? Oh, that's a big question. I guess I'm here because of my writing. I just um, had a book published by Inner Traditions called American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World, a book that I've been working on for a very long time. And I like to write about esoteric subjects. I have also produced documentary films, and I've been in a band called Lucid Nation for a long time. And um, yeah. You could say that in America, there's no uh, history of, of uh, occultism or esotericism. Uh, that's very, it's not very long as compared to Europe, but it was interesting with your book and that, and also with the people you've associated yourself with, uh, is that one of the originators, I think, is, is Manly... Palmer Hall, uh, I mean, he kind of uh, put the foot down and created something that wasn't there before, I don't think. Not, not if you compare to Europe. I think that that is true. Uh, there is a rich history, but it was very much ignored by academia and by the mainstream for most of America's history, although it's been very influential and it's been a constant influence. And of course, the, the greater part of that influence is European. And many of the traditions that, that came to America and flourished here had their origins in Europe. 
But of course, like Europe, America also became a place where many traditions from all around the world uh, influenced each other. And I do think Manley Hall was one of the first to really understand and to write about and lecture about the idea that America has this esoteric history that people don't know about, unfortunately. But there were people before him who had similar concepts. And so, for example, there was an obscure writer at this point named Alexander Wilder, who was the editor of Madame Blavatsky's Isis Unveiled. He was a very influential, what they called then eclectic doctor, which was really the beginnings of holistic medicine. They were they were interested in using herbs and they were looking at the emotions and the context of, of human predicaments and how they affect health as opposed to simple allopathy. And, and there were other writers as well. Al, but Alexander Wilder actually wrote this kind of a timeline showing the influence going all the way back, the, the popular timeline starting with ancient Egypt and with Persia and such, and then coming up through the Hermetica and, and the Neoplatonists. And, and then he, he included America in that tradition. And I think he was one of the earliest to do so. I actually referenced The Secret Teachings of All Ages, Manly Hall's most famous book. Uh, as recently as yesterday, I was writing something and I had to double check something. So I, I used that book and I find it uh, quite amazing that it's still such a good uh, resource as a writer myself. And I'm sure you can agree as a writer that uh, it was quite a, a feat to put that book together, especially at the age he was and, and uh, without the internet. And like I, I, I think it's quite uh, astounding that he managed to do that. I agree. Um, he did tell me once about, actually more than once, about how the book came together. He, he had very pleasant memories of... I guess I should back up a little bit and say that in the beginning, he was involved with a group called the Church of Light. He had lectured there and they were so impressed by him that they invited him to come and lead their congregation. They were an esoterically inclined church and he became their leader and they, they helped support him and gave him all kinds of assistance and, and volunteer work. And so once he had collected the materials that would be in and I should say that his motivation is very interesting too, because he saw how the world war, the first world war had damaged so much esoteric material. And when he traveled, he found in Europe that esoteric books and manuscripts were selling so cheaply because in the aftermath of the war, there was a kind of cynicism and a bitterness toward what had led to the war. And, and the past wasn't as attractive to people as the future. And ideas about utopian uh, brotherhoods and, and such weren't, weren't popular at all. So he was able to acquire this incredible collection that otherwise would have been impossible. He was supported by generous donors. He, he actually acquired, in a sense, the collection in their name. And the Getty is considering changing the name of the collection to reflect the people who actually paid for it. These two women who were oil heiresses who uh, were big supporters of his in the beginning. And so having found these materials and seeing how fragile they were, that, that they could be destroyed by wars or natural disasters, 
and also seeing how obscure they were. And as you said, without the internet, there was no way to find these materials. There's no way for students to have any kind of access to them. And so the motivation for the book was to make all of these materials, as much as he could of them, available to people in a format that that they could consult. And he did have the help of the Church of Light congregation and would describe to uh, my wife Tamara and I about how they would they had all these these things like you know the, these resources the the uh, sources that became this book spread out all over the living room of one of the church members and going off into other rooms and there was ten or a dozen people there who were who were walking around and going okay what about this with this and put this there and he was in charge of the whole thing like this conductor and seeing where everything was going and then and then redirecting it where he wanted to so in a sense the book was a community project at least in its layout now of course he made the decisions about what would be included but he had a lot of help in in creating that beautiful uh, first edition yes i imagine it would be helpful to have assistance like that but still i know for those who haven't read the book you know you can it it in such an easy language and without any confusion he organizes things in a way that is looks it looks simple when you read it but it's if you ever try to do that it's very complicated and uh, so i think that's uh, really well done uh, I agree, especially with the, if I may interrupt you, especially with the way that the the illustrations and their captions so amplified the, the various messages in the book. So you almost get a multidimensional experience when you read it. So you, you're you uh, one, I think you're the first one I talked to who's actually spent time with him. So I want to, in the first part here of our talk, focus on him and then move into your own work and, and your book. Uh, because I, I, he, he Manly was quite influential uh, in my own life and uh, led me down many rabbit holes over the years. And I, like I still reference his. Sometimes, if I write something and I just want to make sure I haven't missed anything, I look up whatever it is in his books uh, to make sure maybe he had an angle I forgot or something. Can you talk about a bit about who, shortly who he was and uh, what he what he meant for you in your life and and things like that sure um let's see he came he was born in 1901 in canada he was strongly influenced by his grandmother who was deeply into the esoteric and and a big admirer of theosophy and of blavatsky his mother was essentially a chiropractor a naturopath who left him with his grandmother and went off to uh, work in the gold mines. There was a lot of miners who needed a chiropractor when they were mining. And later he was reunited with her when he was, I believe, about 18 or 19 years old in Los Angeles at a time when Los Angeles still had wooden sidewalks. He began giving lectures very early. He, he just had this incredible mind. He, he, he would read things and remember them. And having also this presence that was worthy of a movie star brought him to the attention of people like uh, Mrs. Heindel, Max Heindel's widow and other luminaries in the local metaphysical community. And so he received quite a bit of support 
and and didn't disappoint anyone. I remember um, stories being told by people who had been there in the early days about how this young man would just stand up and do what he did all his life, give a 90 minute lecture with this incredible detail of knowledge and without a moment's hesitation about some deeply esoteric and complex subject and make it not only more simple and palatable, but also he was able to find ways to shed light on how these esoteric subjects could improve one's life in more practical ways. And so he was super popular for a time. He, he sold out Carnegie Hall, for example, and he, he often told a story about how uh, one time when he was in Chicago, he was playing a big hall and his overcoat was stolen. And he knew somebody that knew Al Capone, apparently, who so- somehow who was a fan of his speeches. And he he said to this person, is there any way I can get this coat back? And it was back within the hour. And he always thought that was an amusing thing that had happened. But I think it indicates how influential he was at the time. He had fans in every walk of life from from the corridors of power to the most humble people in those days. And in the early days, he was much more interested in occultism. He was more open about it. And he had a more declamatory style, I would say. He was forceful in his delivery and and very much influenced by the, I think, by the vision of theosophy and, and in the sense of seeing these uh, the need to to go out there and proselytize in a sense. But as he matured, even as he became elderly, he he mellowed quite a bit and he became even more interested, although he'd been interested all his life in Eastern traditions, especially in Taoism and in Buddhism, particularly, uh, for example, he was the first American that I know of to write about Shingon Buddhism. And his life reflected that very much when I knew him. I met him at the end of his life. I worked for him for seven years when he was in his 80s, in the 1980s. When I arrived there, the Philosophical Research Society was a, a rather humble community with a f- absolutely run by women, these older women for the most part who it turns out had inherited their positions from their husbands, more or less. But when I was there, the the Philosophical Research Society, which he founded, was run by women, the librarian, the vice president of the society, the people who ran everything except shipping. And it was such a welcoming community. I was coming from a background where my parents were atheist war refugees. And I had a terrible time growing up in American schools. I was constantly beat up as a runt and I had no sense of social contract. Um, My only relation to spirituality was a kind of feral psychic sensitivity. And when I got to be a teenager, I, I just rejected any and all claims on on my honor and started this really ugly band that was uh, nihilist and somewhat fascist and had a very strong following amongst angry young men. And I was into things like Austin Spare and Crowley and 
uh, I was searching for, for some kind of evil power. I, I didn't really know about any other choices. I just knew that, that all the representatives of the godly side of it all that I knew of had failed me and I found them to be uh, impossible to believe in. And it seemed that the only other game in town was satanic, but I found the Church of Satan to be not what I was looking for. So I was digging around in the darker corners of esoteric history, looking for sources of power, basically for my band. And I got into various forms of petty crime and violence, and I was really headed in a bad place. We had a strong following of bikers, and I was only 17 at the time, and I didn't really understand what I was unleashing. A lot of violence occurred around that band. I got lucky. I fell in love. Um, my, my wife was in a bad situation in a club and she asked me, she didn't know me. I don't know why she asked me because I was probably the scariest looking guy in the club. Maybe that's why. But she said, I need help. I'm really in trouble. Can you help me? And I was, I'd never been, I, I just couldn't believe it. Nobody had ever asked me to do something chivalrous and something in me rose to the occasion and I defended her and we wound up falling in love rather quickly. And it changed my whole perspective on life because she, she was a much more, even though she was in herself a rebellious soul, she was much more stable and rational than I. And so she brought out in me a desire to understand more about how to live a good life. And I quit my band um, and I was trying to find a book that I'd seen as a kid that was called Atlantis Mother of Empires, which was by Stacy Judd. And the funny thing about it is I was so attracted to that book. And I, I wanted to shoplift it when I was a kid, but it was a big tome and I, I, there was no way to do it. And it stuck in my mind. And so it was the first book I looked for. Now, I would find out later that Stacy Judd was the architect that built Manley Hall's Philosophical Research Society. I was at the Bodhi Tree Bookstore, a famous metaphysical bookstore in, that used to exist in Los Angeles. And what I found was that I, I couldn't find that book. But what I did find was a copy of The Secret Teachings of All Ages. And it was, uh, I believe, the sixth edition, which was a reduced but still large sized, very old looking tome. The uh, Napal prints were black and white instead of color, but very impressive volume. And it was at that time, of course, it was called an inquiry into, et cetera, not the secret teachings. And so I took that book home. I was reading it chapter by chapter and then sharing everything I read in it with my then girlfriend um, who became my wife. And it just, it seemed like, I really felt like, like blinds were being removed from my mind, like, like sunlight was being let in and all these different subjects. And suddenly to be confronted with all these ideas and all this art that was created by people, many of whom were risking their lives to do these experiments in spirituality and to even more so to record them for posterity. I was very moved by that. But at the time I was obsessed with, I had friends who were moving to Virginia beach because of the Edgar Casey prophecies about earth changes and they, they had gotten to me and I was scared and wanting to move myself. And when I spoke to them and told them about this book I had found, the matriarch of the family 
shocked me by saying that Manley Hall was still alive and giving lectures every Sunday, not far from where I lived. Uh, I stalled for several months because I, I was afraid, honestly, to go there, knowing who I'd been and what I had done. And I didn't think there was any chance that I would be accepted in that community. But eventually, my girlfriend prevailed on me and we went down there. And it was such a beautiful scene, so wholesome and so kind and welcoming. But the most mind-blowing aspect of it was that he literally looked at straight at me during the lecture. And he said, people who have irrational fears of earthquakes due to their uh, guilt about what they have done in life. And I was stunned. And even more stunning in retrospect is that I later found out when I worked with him that he did not have good vision by that point in his life. So he wasn't looking at me and how and sort of reading how I looked or something like that. He wouldn't be able to see me pretty much, just a colorful blur out there. And it's it it's something that many people later told me they also experienced this strange synchronicity quality that he had of being able to address messages to people during his lectures. And there was much speculation about about what exactly was going on there among the people that that were working at, at the Philosophical Research Society. But there was also the knowledge and the acceptance of the fact that a lot of synchronicities happened around him. And so I was very moved and I, I wanted to volunteer and so did my girlfriend. So we went down there the next day and we tried to volunteer. They were interested in her because she had office skills, but they really had nothing for me. They did ask me if I had any facility with languages. And I mentioned that I'd grown up in a household where many languages were spoken. About a day or two later, I got a phone call saying that Manley Hall wanted to meet me, which was stunning and, and intimidating. And so I went down there, I went into his office. He had four of the women who ran the place standing around him. He was sitting at this beautiful, ornate Chinese desk, carved Chinese desk that he had, big desk. And he asked me to come in and make myself miserable in a W.C. Fields accent. He had a stack of paper in front of him and he slid it toward me and he said, this is the galley of my alchemical bibliography. Now, I, I didn't know... I didn't really know much about alchemy except what I'd read in his book. I didn't know what a bibliography was and I didn't know what a galley was. And he told me, I would like you to edit it. I had no education really to speak of except public school. And I, I, I told him, I think you've mistaken me for someone else. I don't have any of these skills. I would not be able to do this. And he said, no, I, I feel that you're the right person and you'll be fine. You go ahead and we'll, I'll, I'll keep an eye on you. Then he, he slid the papers over to me and I picked him up and I left the office, but the vice president of the society went out another door and she, she, she kind of blocked me and was like, give me that paperwork. That was a mistake. And I said, I, I agree with you. I'm not qualified to do this here. And I gave it to her with a sense of relief. When I got home that afternoon, there was a, another call from PRS and I was told that Manley Hall wanted to see me first thing in the morning, the next day. So I went back there and this time he was alone. I think his secretary came in at one point and he pushed the galley back at me and he said, from now on, you take orders only from me. And 
you will do this bibliography and you'll be great at it. You'll see. And he said, I'm going to show you what to do when you come in each day, what to work on. And then we'll meet for lunch and we can have lunch in the vault and you can pick up and ask me questions about the books that you're working on in the bibliography. And then in the afternoon, before we call it a day, I will check on your work. Who could turn down an offer like that? Uh, it, it was, I still, to this day, get goosebumps about it. It, it. it was just, I don't know why he was so incredibly generous. My theory is that he was in a bit of a bind. The bibliographer who had been working on that book did a wonderful job, Bennett Gilbert, but he got into a conflict with Mr. Hall about his inclusion of bodily fluids in the descriptions of some of the recipes in these alchemical manuscripts and books. And he felt as a scholar that this was important information that other scholars would want access to. But Mr. Hall thought that not only was it potentially dangerous for people who might be tinkering with actual alchemy, but it may also alienate the people that were most likely to buy the book, which were his following of basically middle-class people. And when the scholar put his foot down and absolutely refused, he was fired. And this opened the way for me. At first, we worked together briefly. He was kind enough to help me. And I, I tried to convince Mr. Hall to give him credit, but Mr. Hall said he was a contracted worker and that was that. And so my first job was to remove all references to bodily fluids from the alchemical bibliography. It was an amazing education. Uh, this book came from one of those afternoons having lunch in the vault, my book. It began when I saw this, this leather bound, large tome and he said, sure, take a look at it. And when I opened it, it was a newspaper called The Platonist that had been published in what was then the Western frontier around the time of the gunfight at the OK Corral in, of all places, St. Louis, and which at that time was just beginning to industrialize, but had been a big cattle town and still was. And inside this thing called the Platonist, there were numerous translations of Iamblichus, Plotinus, Proclus, and much to my shock, Abner Doubleday, who was known in America as a Civil War general on the Union side who fired the first shot at Fort Sumter and who was also falsely credited for inventing baseball, that he had contributed to this newspaper a translation of Elephas Levi of Transcendental Magic. It was, I, I, what did this thing, where did it come from? Why? Who was reading it? And Mr. Hall didn't have a whole lot of answers about it. There just wasn't much information about this thing. So that's what started me actually on the research that over all this time has led to this book being published. As for Mr. Hall himself, he was a very kind, very fun person, great sense of humor. I was very fortunate that, that he and, and his wife and my wife and I became good friends. He told us we could drop by his home anytime. We had dinner with him many times at home and in restaurants and uh, super 
really wonderful grandfather and grandmother like relationship for us where they advised us in all sorts of ways. And in fact, we're the real, the only reason why we got married because we didn't really want to get married. We weren't believers in it. And he, he and uh, Marie, his wife insisted that we should get married and they actually picked the date and he performed the ceremony in their backyard. And their friendship was, was just wonderful to have. I could ask him questions about whatever I was working on, but in general, when we were together, he liked to tell jokes, talk about a sports event, show, show off the latest stamps that he had gotten because he had this incredible stamp collection. He, he kind of preferred to leave work at home, although his life reflected his work and everything that he did. His home was a beautiful collection of art collected over his decades, Many of, of, of much of it gifts, and much of it from Tibet and China and Japan. And so the room, his rooms had shoji screens and lamps with shoji shades. And it just was such a beautiful environment. And they were so lovely. His wife, Marie, would get real worked up about her theories. And I worked with her for a while at his request to try to better understand and to present to others what her theories were. And she, she would become so excited and overly enthusiastic that sometimes she would burst into tears or into angry tirades about what was going on in the world, the governments, and and how there was going to someday be this reformation. She she spoke in, a, in an almost Rosicrucian language, but her belief system was a, a melange of all kinds of different things that she put together. And so it was fascinating, even though sometimes it was difficult to uh, follow her. Later, she found out long after uh, we were gone from their world that she actually had diabetes. And part of this was probably sugar spikes, but she was very passionate about uh, reformation and about the, the world coming to some sort of a realization that it could be a far better place than it is. It was fascinating to listen to the two of them discussing these matters because they did share similar interests and things like did Francis Bacon actually write the Shakespeare plays was Bacon a moving force behind Rosicrucianism and all the popular theories of that kind. And so my wife and I were, were always of the, of the feeling of, well, I, I we don't know if that, that people are really going to care that much about that. Do you really think that that's going to change the world? And so we would discuss that, for example, so it was a, an amazing blessing to have their friendship. Eventually, I became his his designated substitute lecturer because I, I lectured in a similar style and, and his followers liked what I was doing. And I became his screener and so did my wife so that if people who wanted to meet with him uh, that set off red flags would have to meet with us first. And I was his research assistant. So I, I got to have great experiences of watching him work on four or five different things in a single day, which helped me to do my work and also completely changed my view of, views on aging because here was this man who was in his mid eighties and he would call me into his office and say, I need this book. You'll find it on the second floor on a shelf in the left corner. Um, I mean, he knew where everything was and his memory was so excellent. It just completely 
revolutionize my ideas about aging. So there's there's a, a relatively brief view of it. I would recommend to anyone who wants to know what it was really like to read my wife Tamara Lucid's book, um, Making the Ordinary Extraordinary, because I think she captures the feeling of the place and the events that occurred to us really beautifully. Considering the location, uh, did he have any influence in, in like Hollywood in films or anything like that? Because it, it's such a it would it would be such a good source of inspiration. He he did, but his his experiences with Hollywood were uh, were not really the most successful part of his life. It, it tended to. I'll give you a few examples. So. On one level, he was friends with a lot of famous people. So when I knew him, he was friends with Burl Ives and he was friends with John Denver, the famous folk singer. And he he did attract celebrities at various times in his life. He was a very good friend of Bela Lugosi and married Bela Lugosi to his last wife, Hope. He also married... Um... Oh, wow, just slipped right out of my hand. Well, I'll come back to it. It'll be sure to, to reoccur. At any rate, his actual involvement with Hollywood as a screenwriter and as someone who was trying to be involved in actual productions was relatively limited. There was a film made from a script idea that he had about using astrology to solve crimes. And he appears at the beginning of that film talking about each astrological sign briefly. The film had uh, a famous, really the, the greatest of the Asian actresses of the era, Mary Wong in it. And she she uses astrology to, to solve a crime. People who like him and who like metaphysics in general enjoy it, but it wasn't really a very good film and it wasn't a very successful film. And he found the experience frustrating because the producers not only misspelled his name in the film, in his credits, <clears throat> excuse me, but they also ignored his, his actual ideas and script and they made it into something that he really didn't want it to be which is typical of Hollywood. And it wasn't something that he enjoyed having to experience because he felt that they ruined the, this good idea. And the other person that he married was uh, the poet Bukowski, who he also knew. And so he also was involved with Bell Lugosi in, in hypnotizing Lugosi for a role that he was playing in a film where he was going to have to pretend that he was buried alive or interred and there was this, there is actually on YouTube film of him doing these sort of hypnotic passes on Lugosi to prepare him. It was part of the publicity for the film, but it also, it didn't go over very well. And when I knew him, he regretted his involvement with Hollywood and he was very happy that the film and the promo for the Lugosi film were not available to the general public. And he hoped that they would not be. And I, I'm sure that he would have been um, a little less than enthused at the fact that they are now available for anyone to see on YouTube. So he, he wasn't, I would say, a significant influence directly. On the other hand, there were many screenwriters and people associated with Hollywood who were inspired by him, who came to his lectures, who, who definitely in their work reflected some of what he was bringing 
to us in, in this Southern California environment. And I think that's an understudied area of his influence. Uh, we know of some people, but it's hard to really get an idea of all of whom were there because not everybody made themselves overtly available to history to be known. Uh, for example, Elvis was a fan, but Elvis never actually showed up to meet him. Elvis sent somebody, Priscilla, to get a copy of the big book signed, but he didn't want to be seen hanging out with this occult person. And so I imagine that there were people like that who were influenced that we'll probably never hear about. So I, my answer would be that, yes, he was an influence, but I think most effectively in subtle ways. Maybe I'm wrong, but my, my impression is that today he's he's not as well known as he should be uh, compared to other characters of history of a similar status. I don't know if you have the same feeling, but it's, it's not like a... I mean, of course, within occult circles or people interested in these topics or in spirituality, yes, but I'm talking about the general population his name has kind of fallen away. Yes, I, I I would agree with that. I think I think there was a level where he first of all, I think part of the reason for that is because his reputation has suffered here and there from writing about him. So uh, there was a, a biography of him published that disillusioned a lot of people, and a lot of people don't like that book. They People who loved his community and his work feel that it misrepresented him. And one of the things that, that I was privileged to, to be able to see because Tamara wrote her book was people who loved Manly Hall telling her how much uh, gratitude they felt that she had captured the manly hall that they thought he was the one that we had experienced in our lives, as opposed to the manly hall that they had read about in this book that seemed to linger on misadventures and less admirable qualities. I think also that he tends to fall into, um, well, for instance, today there are people who are motivated by by QAnon and other views on current events who see him. And there, there are some who see him as a source of, of information in his American exceptionalism and such that is useful to them. But there are many who see him as some kind of an Illuminati, a somebody who was deeply involved in Hollywood and, and, and had some sort of grand plan to, create a one world order because he did talk about these things, but he was talking about them with, in his mind, he was, he was thinking of the universal reformation of the Rosicrucians and, and a utopia. He was not trying to create some sort of government by the elite to squash the, the proletariat. He's been accused of being a communist. He's been accused of being a fascist. And you can find things in his writing that if you take them out of context can sound alarming. So, for example, and this is a very minor example, but when I used to substitute for his for him in his lectures, I would have to lecture on whatever subject he had chosen for that Sunday. And so it was it was much to my chagrin that 
later in life when I, I found some of these recordings and I took them to a friend to have them mastered and digitized that the lecture title for one of them was marriage in the new world order. Well, in 2016, that was not a good title because the new world order had a whole different connotation than it did when Manly Hall was using it in 1980, thinking about the Rosicrucians. It's more of a Renaissance kind of concept to him. So I think that the way that he's been misrepresented means that when people run into him in the wrong places, it turns them off. They think that he, he must have just been one of those crackpot occultists that America produced so many examples of. And my book somewhat argues that even some of the so-called crackpot occultists actually were fascinating people who had some wisdom to share. Even the frauds, in some cases, had interesting things to share. It, it's much more complicated than simple good or bad. I think that he has been, unfortunately, presented in a poor light often. And, and in my experience of him, and again, I didn't know him at any other time. I only knew him in the 80s. But the man that I knew truly was deserving of being called a sage. And the impact that he had on the people around him was was inestimable, including myself. Uh, just I can't I can't even put into words what I owe him in terms of civilization and knowledge. And just it, it was like uh, not just a mystery school, but a university education just to be around him because of his love of art and his love of all spiritual paths and all cultures. He was so fascinated with with everything about life and and that rubbed off on the people around him. So I think that he may become more popular. I know that more writers are taking him up. Mitch Horowitz has been writing about him quite a bit. And there are other authors that have been been bringing him into their writing. Uh, Gary Lackman has talked about him a little bit more and used to attend his lectures at, at PRS. So NPRS is, is seems to be flourishing right now and is putting out a lot more material, things that have not been available. So my feeling is that we will probably see him gain more stature going forward. It's, it's weird how uh, it seems society judges people, uh, not who they are now, but who they used to be. And it would be logical to assume that the older person is, the, the better they are. I mean, if you look at... Uh, if uh, the Buddha, I mean, when he was 20, 30 years old, we don't know for sure, but according to legend anyway, he, he was like a spoiled rich person who didn't care about anything. I mean, so you can't judge him on that phase of his life. Uh, so, you know. Yes. Well, there certainly is a, a tendency in our fast-paced culture to try to find just one salient fact. And... I, and then make a decision about somebody based on that. And I do understand, I feel as a musician, I mean, so many of the musicians that I uh, admired and was, in, and was influenced by did things then or later in life that I found out about that make it hard for me to, to listen to their music in a way. So I, I, I do understand that. But on the other hand, writing this book really taught me that, that, Everyone is complex, that there, everyone has within them the potential to be an initiate or to be the worst kind of fraud to some degree. And that, that even the highest levels of attainment 
can have some reflections in them that are less admirable. And we can, can we count on one hand the people in world history who might be faultless? And so I think it's, a, it's an unfortunate habit that is exasperated by how fast paced our culture is necessitating that we decide where we're going to put our attention because our attention is being demanded in so many places. Yeah, I think it's uh, good to to pick and choose. I, I used to, when I was younger, I used to hate all religious uh, texts, sacred texts, because I only saw the, you know, the homophobia or, or whatever it was. Uh, but now I can enjoy the Bible and I the things I don't like. Well, I just uh, it's not that I ignore them. It's just that uh, it's not important. I look at I try to look at the essence of the thing and and when you look at the essence of things it's usually good. Yes, I think of it as as I think the things that trouble us are accidents of time and place. They are they're aspects of culture and of context whereas the the truth that shines through is something that we can appreciate despite that. So uh, your book Uh, can you tell a bit about uh, about it and w- what people can expect if they would read it? I wrote it because well, it didn't. It, I didn't begin it to be a book. I started it because, for example, in pursuing knowledge about what the Platonist was, I went to all the local college libraries. I tried to contact anybody who might know anything about the subject, and that process uncovered more and more information. So for example, regarding the Platonist, I eventually found a very obscure little book called Platonists of the Midwest, which had been published some 20 years earlier, but was very hard to come by. And that book answered a lot of questions about who the people were involved in the Platonist, but it it led to many more questions. And so I pursued this even when I was in my band and we were touring, I would go to libraries or museums or to bookstores in search of information because I was in this city that might give me access that I didn't have at home, especially prior to the internet. And so I didn't really write any of this down until around 2010 or 2011. I just had notebooks of of information and stacks of books with turned pages and and little checks at certain points and a friend of mine had uh, started a website called Newtopia and and knew about my interests and asked me to please write about these subjects so I did that it was noticed by book forum and by by a bunch of academics who liked my work and but I didn't really even then I didn't really think of doing much with it But then another friend of mine who was somebody that had been a friend of Manley Hall's, he had been his driver and his audio engineer, a fascinating fellow by the name of Arthur Johnson, who was a brilliant jazz guitarist who had played with Lena Horne and all kinds of wonderful musicians, had even been complimented by Miles Davis. He was a prolific writer, but he was kind of pre-digital and he found himself near the end of his life with a two foot stack of a paper that wasn't finished. I mean, he had books and poems and all essays and, 
but none of it was organized. None of it was polished. None of it was really finished. And none of, none of it was digitized. And he reached a point in his life where his illness had overcome him and he knew that it would never be. And this caused him great suffering. So he called in one of the conversations that, that my wife Tamara and I had with him, he urged us with all the gravity of impending death to not delay to write down and to use all the notes that we had acquired over the years. And he prevailed on Tamara to write about her perspective as Manley Hall's friend, because he felt, I think correctly, that as a young woman who'd gone on to a career in punk rock as a riot girl, that her close friendship with him, as they were really pals, was was going to be, a her perspective would be unique and would help people to understand him who otherwise might not have, have been able to. So he did, he scared us and we got to work. And so that is how the book actually came about. But as I was working on it, my motivations on the one hand were remembering myself as this lost kid trying to find an alternative to mainstream religion and being able to find almost nothing. And my research showed that actually there was a wealth of history and of different approaches to spirituality throughout American history that, that could benefit people by giving them so many different varieties of approaches and maybe something would, would resonate with them the way that certain things resonated with me. Also, there was a revolution in academia that occurred really starting somewhat, but sparingly in the 80s and 1980s, perhaps with a book by Harold Bloom called The American Religion, where he had the opinion that uh, it should be that American religion should be called American Orphism and that American Christianity is not Christianity proper. And he toyed with the concept of an American metaphysical religion. And in around 2000, I believe, but in the in the 2000s, Catherine Albanese, a, a wonderful academic, published a book called A Republic of Mind and Reason, in which she surveyed the whole hermetic tradition and then showed how it, it had affected American history throughout the, the colonies and then on into the New Age and everything in between. And this book is almost in itself established a field of study in academia known as American metaphysical religion. And in, since about, I would say maybe 2010, but, but in the 2000s, the explosion of new academic work in this arena is very exciting and has radically changed perspectives on, on many of our most cherished traditions. And to give you one example, so many of us were greatly influenced by the wonderful books of Francis Yates, such as the Rosicrucian Enlightenment or her wonderful book on Giordano Bruno, which was very popular in the 1960s. But new scholarship shows that, that a lot of what Yates speculated about was inaccurate. And there, there really isn't evidence for a good deal of it. And there was also a new book published by another wonderful scholar, Nadine Ackerman, who was the first to get 
access to the materials of Elizabeth Stort and to look at, at what happened in that court with her and Frederick and, and the way that we all know that this was a huge influence on Rosicrucianism. There were great hopes that Frederick might become a Protestant Holy Roman Emperor. But the vision that she unfolds of what was really going on in that court and what Elizabeth's part in it was, and, and this the details changed radically from her research. So I find that terribly exciting. I, I really, especially in regards to American metaphysical history, I found so much material that people like myself who are enthusiasts but never have access to academic materials most likely never hear about them, but but can't afford them because the books are often over a hundred dollars. I wanted to take all of this this new research and apply it and and get a new picture of of what we know now. And I was really very gratified to find great support from academia. And you know, as you probably know, there's traditional distrust to say the least between the sort of what Mr. Hall used to call the rogue scholars of esoterica and academia. But I found that I was welcomed with open arms and helped in great ways. They were so generous in sharing information and papers and and insights and reading my work and even contributing to the book and in some cases their own thoughts. And so that was my other motivation, was to make available to, to people who have an interest in this area as much of this new research as I could. And I've also written a book with Tamara that does the same thing in the area of the Orphic mysteries and the influence of Orphism throughout history. That one will be out in August of this year. And I just signed, I'm about to sign a deal with Inner Traditions for another book in which I apply all this new research to the origins of Rosicrucianism. So those three books are, are my attempt to take this, this newfound wealth of information and make it available to people who otherwise not, might not have, have known it exists. And I think that it's, uh, it's just, I think they'll be as excited as I am about what has been uncovered. The Philosophical Research Society, I always found that it's, it's based on uh, a collection of, of knowledge from different areas in the world and uh, throughout history, uh, funneled through Manly Hall's uh, mind. But, in, in, but there's also the uh, Rosicrucian, the uh, Amork, uh, and I don't know much about it, but my the little I know, my impression from not having visited any of these buildings or been there myself, my impression is that the Amork is, is more shallow uh, compared, I mean, it feels more like a, it feels more like a, a, a business of some sort. Like, uh, that's my impression. I don't know if it's true, but. Uh, I think they have, I do think they have similarities uh, in some ways. I, I think, I think that part of what you're sensing there perhaps is that that for those organizations there was a greater pressure to to get money to to make a living to to pay for the buildings and keep them going. Manley Hall was so fortunate to have such generous support from early on. 
And so he had the luxury of not having to to kind of use pressure techniques or or the approaches that others may have found necessary to keep things going. And it's also, I think, an application of uh, there's an era there of American business that I think influenced those organizations. There was a sense of I write about it in my book that there there would be experiences like someone would have a dream or a vision and they were told to go to this place and there would be a lot. And on that lot, they would build the buildings that would become this place. And, and this was happening in a California, especially in California, but not only in California where it was a new world. Construction was cheap and the people that came here tended to be people that were interested in outsider topics and so there was a great daring in terms of, of vision, envisioning new cultures and new approaches that that became somewhat ossified, I think, in the reality of running an organization like that. And also a pressure that I felt even in the 80s as his substitute lecturer, which was I liked to do what he liked to do, which is I like to to read about, let's say, neoplatonic ideas about theurgy and that's what i was excited about but when i talked about that my audience wasn't very excited they wanted to know how could they live better how could they they understand the meaning of life better how could they get over problems that they had and not worry so much and i found that that he mr hall and, and i felt some of this pressure too felt that we had to tend to the flock in a sense. And so we couldn't really focus on the deeply esoteric things that we would like to. We had to focus on what people needed in their lives and to try to help them to to achieve a better life. And so this also would create things like, well, instead of what he used to do, for example, Manley Hall, which was he would get a small group of students who were interested in Neoplatonism, and he would deliver 90-minute lectures that were were PhD level on the subject, that now people were feeling forced to distill this information into palatable lessons that could be mailed out once a month to a following that paid a nominal fee. So the the dynamics of trying to reach the audience and, and trying to keep the thing going, I think put pressure on these organizations that I, I understand what you mean when you say that, that they seem more shallow, but I don't know that if we, if we dug more deeply into these organizations that we would find that the same enthusiasms were there more or less as at PRS, but Manley Hall also he he had a way of just he, he's so all encompassing, you know, like with the Rosicrucians, for example, Max Heindel, I believe it was Max Heindel. Yes. Had a statue of Sekhmet, the Egyptian goddess on his desk all his life. And he was deeply into Egyptian culture and there was an Egyptian museum. And and so. But Manly Hall was into all of it, Egyptian Chinese, Japanese, indigenous American, uh, anything and everything was included in his his sphere of interest. And that was one of the things that I loved about PRS was just 
you could almost think of anything and you'd find something about it in there, or maybe even an example of it. And just to walk through that library and to see the, the art in there that he had acquired over the years, the, the Tibetan prayer wheels and the incredible statues of the Buddha and, and, but also hermetic items. And it, it, it sort of was like a distillation of the world into one place. And I think that makes it unique. One thing I find interesting about America, I mean, you can find this in all the countries in the Western world, if you call it that. But in America, there's more instances of like new religions uh, coming up, like Scientology, Mormonism, I guess, uh, the Church of Satan and many others. What, what do you think is about America that it makes it possible for this to happen more than maybe in other countries where they remain as a little sect that don't really become much bigger than that. Yes. I think that it's in the origins of the country to begin with, because there were many who fled here so that they could practice whatever their religion was freely. And then that process replicated itself within America. So to give you an example We have John Winthrop, the governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, who establishes the Pilgrims in America. Well, his son is an avid fan of the Rosicrucian manifestos and an esotericist who studies alchemy and Kabbalah and who actually goes to Europe and is disappointed not to find any Rosicrucians, but then decides to apply Rosicrucian principles in his own life. When he moves to America to join his father, he sends over crates full of alchemical equipment and including many of the items that were in John Dee's library. And he marks the crates with John Dee's famous Monus Hieroglyphica, which is pretty strange if you think about it for a, pil- a pilgrim to do, as, as, well, considering how pilgrims are viewed today, it, it certainly indicates to us that, that they were much more complex than we think. Now, he did not find an entirely supportive climate with the pilgrims in Boston. So he moved away to what became Connecticut and became the first governor of Connecticut Colony and a very famous alchemical doctor in the area. And so there were others such as Roger Williams who went off to Rhode Island to, to extend religious tolerance to people. And, and then of course there were Europeans who from the start came from Germany and, and moved into what was then the deep frontier of Pennsylvania for the Ephrata community and the woman in the wilderness and, and such, and, and were carrying with them Rosicrucian ideas so the country had a heritage that and we see this all over it. We see that, for example, in the Appalachias, that there are people who who sort of go into the deep forest because they don't want to go to church. They want to practice their own version of religion, which includes all kinds of various superstitions that they've inherited, as well as some elements of Christianity, but also things that they pick up from indigenous culture and elsewhere. And this also speaks to the ability of American society to mutate the traditions that are brought here. So I, for instance, argue in the book that in many ways, American Christianity resembles American metaphysical religion more than it resembles traditional Christianity. 
there is a new book that Catherine Albanese has just released uh, that I think is called Anglo-American Metaphysical Religion and the Pursuit of Happiness, something like that. I'm, I'm eager to read it. But her argument is that I believe that in America, religion itself has been changed because of the idea of the pursuit of happiness, that that if you look at the patriarchal monotheistic religions, we're seeing the idea that at best, this world in all its beauty is a, a challenge and a constant risk to salvation and is not to be trusted. And at worst, it's a trap in which souls can lose themselves and, and be damned. But in America, the pursuit of happiness has become the central issue of religion. And so among American Christians, there is the prevalent prosperity gospel and the idea that if you are suffering poverty, it must be because you're not in a good relationship with your church and your God. And certainly this has been used by frauds to to, to steal money, but it is it is saturated the American psyche, this idea that that I deserve to be happy. God wants me to be happy. That if my soul was in control of my body and my life, I would be happy. Now, these ideas go far back into history, obviously, and we'll, we'll find this in, among the Pythagoreans and the Egyptians and the idea that by, by writing the soul, we, we, we write our lives and then our lives become uh, in service of the greater harmony of the divine, of the good, the true, and the beautiful, and, and therefore we live better lives. But in America, it became materialistic and in a way that, that it was not. It was, it was understood more overtly as, you know, perhaps among the Egyptians, the idea of the sensual pleasure of life was held up as being worthwhile. But in America, it's about getting rich and having a jet plane and being powerful. And God wants you to do that. And this is also can be seen amongst the metaphysical various paths that are here where there are all sorts of practices ranging from the more materialistic forms of ceremonial magic to the very popular manifestation spirituality where people try to think the right thoughts into their subconscious so that they can manifest in their life the good things that they wish. And this is something that America, when you, when you combine that, so you, you, you have, to summarize, on the one hand, the, the country begins with people who are fleeing religious persecution and they want the freedom to practice as they wish, even though most of them didn't want to extend it to others. And, and you also then have the, the melting pot feature of the influence of all these different heritages coming together in, in an environment where there is so much wilderness and an absence of churches in many places. And, and then you have, finally, this American idea that the pursuit of happiness is above all else, and that if you can't do it here, you just get on, the, you get on that road and you go to the next place, and maybe you can do it there. So that would be my answer to why it happens more easily here. I think one big mistake, they should never have put the occult symbolism on, on the money. The, it, I think it's put many people down the wrong rabbit holes. <laughs> It certainly did, didn't it? I mean, that was that's the Freemasonic influence of the founding fathers, and unfortunately, the Freemasons have been so misunderstood and demonized throughout history, and and perhaps deservedly in places in history. And you know, when we see the connection of uh, someone like Ashmole, who is held up as a 
a example of of a supremely human Freemason. Um, and, and this is a guy who was an investor in the Royal African Company and was involved in the slave trade, uh, who was very untrustworthy in terms of as a collector and his actions took advantage of elderly people and such. So again, there's, there, there's, there's that oversimplification and I agree. I mean, I, that, that all seeing eye, which appears on my book and, and also on Tamara's book when we saw the covers and I love the cover of my book, I, th- I thought they did a lovely job on it. But, but when I saw it, I thought, Oh, <laughs> for that same reason. Yeah. Well, I got to reclaim symbols, I guess. Yeah. Yes. I think ultimately what the, what the real meaning of the symbol is, is so much more beautiful. Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, the swastika is, will be probably impossible to reclaim, which is a shame uh, that they ruined it. But uh, but the all seeing eye is possible, I think. Uh, so where can people buy your book or, or read it if they want to? It is available um, on all the major online retailers. It's also available in some stores. And I encourage people to purchase it from the publisher, Inner Traditions, because then more money goes to the publisher. And they do such wonderful, weird books like, like mine. And... Also, local stores, if you want to support your local store, they can certainly order it. And, and I, I do like supporting local bookstores. I think that's a wonderful thing to do for your community. But it's available all over the place, pretty much. Well, great. It was very interesting to talk to you and good luck with your work. No, well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Check out Ronnie's book, American Metaphysical Religion as well as his wife, Tamra Lucid's excellent book about their life with Manly P. Hall called Making the Extraordinary Ordinary. You'll find the links in the program notes. On the YouTubes, there are many kinds of channels you can follow. Reaction channels, mukbang channels, prank channels, comedy channels, and PewDiePie or Mr. Beast. But they are already making bank. Consider supporting a channel that as of yet hasn't really decided even what it is. If you build it, nerds will come. The Natural Born Alchemist YouTube channel. Search for that on YouTube and you will find it. And apart from posting the podcast, I make videos on alchemy, psychedelics, anarchy and films. Hopefully you'll enjoy them. It would really help if you subscribe. Thank you. Subscribe. Please, if you can, give uh, the podcast a nice review on Spotify. I think you can give it five stars out of five, uh, if you want. And uh, you can also leave a nice written review uh, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that's that's always helpful. Become a patron or or just share the the podcast in social media Uh, most importantly i hope you subscribe to the youtube channel so you don't miss out on my history of alchemy series that is going to come out very soon i'm going to close this episode with the song saddle tramp by dickless dickless was a seattle-based all-female band their short existence coincided with the emerging 
Riot Girl music culture in the early 90s. Hopefully both Ronnie and Tamara will appreciate ending this episode with some punk vibes. After all, punk and metaphysics go hand in hand. Freedom is in the mind. <laughs>